You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who would rather shake hands with every person in Florida than listen to another Donald Trump briefing. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, I am thrilled to have Sarah Kenzior, the best-selling author of The View from Flyover Country and co-host of the political podcast Gaslit Nation. She has a new book out now called Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. It traces several decades of recent history and explains why Trump's presidency is neither an accident nor an overnight phenomenon. Sarah, welcome to Recode Decode. Oh, thank you for having me. So um, I'd love to talk about so many things. There's so many things here. And I want to point out to, to listeners who may not know Sarah's work, um, her book, The View from Flower Country, was a real wake-up call to a lot of people because it was 100% right uh, when a lot of other uh, journalists who had covered this space, the political space, uh, for a long time were acting as if this was a weird phenomena. And and one of the things you did was accurately predicted the rise of Donald Trump. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the repercussions of that book uh, when it when it came out. I think people were surprised and, and you had already been sounding this line because you had studied autocratic regimes for years. Yeah, um, the view from Flyover Country covered uh, the loss of institutional stability of social trust um, in the United States, but also worldwide. Um, and my background is, um, you know, an anthropologist by training. I have a PhD. I studied dictatorships in the former Soviet Union, especially Uzbekistan, and the use of digital media. And so, you know, this book was written between um, 2012 and 2014. It's a collection of essays that covers economics, politics, um, technology, and so on. But basically, it, it covers loss. It covers grief. It covers the collapse of a lot of institutions that I think people thought were stronger than they were. And it helped create the conditions that allowed people like Donald Trump to rise in the U.S. And that also led to this worldwide rise of right-wing demagogues, of white supremacists, of white-collar crime blending with organized crime. And so, yeah, you know, originally when it came out, I think some folks thought, you know, I was hyperbolic. Yeah, I remember seeing, I was like, I was like she's making perfect sense. I, haven't, <laughs> I was telling Sarah earlier that I had studied the Holocaust and the and the conditions that led to Nazism. And it was very similar. It was like a very similar idea of, of, of feelings about society, obviously, that came in the wake of World War One and all the conditions that were imposed on Germany. But, you know, you were talking what made a lot of sense. There were several books in that genre is of disaffected people that are looking for answers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, our politicians, our pundits really underestimated the amount of pain people were in, the amount of suffering they're experiencing on a daily basis and how easily that pain is exploited, how easily it's put to bad ends and how few, um, you know, will speak out and fight against it. And I don't mean ordinary people because pe most people are just struggling to survive and plenty of people are looking out for each other. They're looking out for their communities, their neighbors, but at a kind of high level, there is such endemic corruption and rot within our, our institutions that when they were attacked externally uh, from actors, you know, like the Kremlin or, you know, what I've been referring to as a trans 
transnational crime syndicate, because that's really what it is. It's not it's not just Russia, uh, you know, who has uh, at fault here. It's a lot of people. Um, our defenses as Americans were down. And I think some of that is this, you know, veneer of American exceptionalism that was pushed through to the very bitter end. It's only in the last couple of years that that illusion has fallen away for people. And it's only under the worst of circumstances. You know, you and I are now having this conversation as we're sequestered from a plague that's being exploited by an aspiring autocrat that's rapidly consolidating his power. Like, you know, you would think you can't go lower mm -hmm. than that. No. But I know that yeah. you, as someone who studied Nazi Germany, I mean, you know exactly how low uh, it can go and, and what sort of dangers we may be facing so, in our future. So we're going to get to the, what's happening now, because I think it's really important to think about that. You're right. People are isolated and it is it's ideal conditions. It's attacking the media, isolation, feeling economically disempowered, feeling economically vulnerable, especially and everybody at every part of society is feeling that way. Talk a little bit about sort of when you were writing Flower Country, why people didn't see it coming and why you did. What, what do you, I mean, you obviously have studied, there are patterns everywhere in this world uh, and they're easy to see once you have a, uh, have a wider view, I guess, a higher view. Talk a little bit about that, like getting the idea of, it's mostly listening to people and hearing them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing is when people throw out that phrase, nobody saw it coming, it really shows who they mean by nobody. Because um, certainly when you look at things like income inequality, poverty, systemic racism, the people who are victims there, who are suffering there, they saw it coming and they spoke out. They lived that life. That's their lived experience. What happened is people in power didn't take it seriously. They either just dismissed it as irrelevant because these are people who lack power um, um, or they thought, you know, this is this is being hyperbolic, this is being uh, partisan, you know, and so on and so forth. They tried to politicize it. They treated it like a game um, instead of somebody's real life experience. And so that's part of it. I also think that there's a loss of civics education in the U.S. And I think there's a loss of a broad international perspective. You know, there is this view that America was somehow different, that we wouldn't ever go down the kind of autocratic trajectory that so many countries have gone down. But of course, our own history uh, debunks that, our history of slavery, of uh, Native American genocide, of internment camps during World War II. We have had selective state-sanctioned autocracy, and we have had a long history of white supremacist demagogues and of plutocrats um, you know, disempowering the people. So it's not at all surprising that that would help lead to Donald Trump. You know, and then there are other things, too, like what Russia did, what the FBI did, a lot of different factors. But that's my view from Flyover Country. Uh, while it came out before the election, it became popular after the election because that was the point where people took me seriously and started writing these articles about me called, like, the Cassandra of Trump. Yeah, and right. That's nice, Cassandra. I'm still Cassandra. Cassandra bad rap. Can I just say, <laughs> the Cassandra myth gets a bad rap. She's always seen as this idiot who opens a box, but actually it's much more complex than that. And so it's, it's, it's the, I wouldn't use that word because I think it's it, only I think because... that's Pandora. Cassandra right, was okay, the one Cassandra, who knew I'm the sorry, truth. Cassandra, yes, knew the and truth. everybody sorry. dismissed her and thought she was, you know, a lunatic. Right, and I'm then... sorry, I'm mixing them up. I'm thinking <laughs> no, of Pandora. No, All of them, all, I think most women in myths don't do very well. Exactly. But in any case, um, I'm sorry, that was a mistake on my part. Um, when we're thinking about this idea of telling the truth before, one of the things that you talk about is this income inequality issue, which I think is continuing to this day. And it's something I pay a lot of attention to in tech, given the massive amount of money the people I cover have made in, the, in a very short time, unprecedented in the history of this country and unprecedented in the history of the world. And of course, one of the things I talked about this morning was how good it was that some of these people were contributing money to this crisis and at the same time how bad it was because this is we are relying on billionaires who will be unaccountable uh you know eventually to anything and of course they're doing are doing on their redemption tours talk a little bit about income inequality because one of the things that i've there's just this elite at the very top of society that has so much money it's obscene amount of money and then there's a group at the bottom who, you know, have been left behind in education, in nutrition, in in every in information, in access, things like that, who are never going to be pulled up. And this vast group of people in the middle who should be pulled up by the top that are not being and they're not pulling up the people below them. And so it's kind of a weird situation with this group on the top and creating this really yeah. unusual situation in income inequality. This situation has been growing exponentially worse uh, for my entire life, but especially since the crash of uh, 2008, which was not exactly a recession so much as it was a restructuring. And I talk about that a lot in View from Flyover Country, that 
companies had workers in such a bind that they basically could be in a position of not paying them, you know, calling things an internship, saying you'll get paid an exposure, so on and so forth. And then you see people locked in, uh, you know, minimum wage jobs and low wage jobs where they're- Gig economy jobs. Gig yeah, economy and jobs. Gig economy jobs. That's a huge part of it because that is just such a, an element of instability. You lose your access to healthcare, to benefits, things that are necessities of life, like healthcare, uh, like education, like childcare, childbirth even, the costs for all those things began to skyrocket at the exact same time that wages were either stagnating or going down. And so that led to, you know, a completely unsustainable situation for everyone of my generation and honestly of, of most generations. I mean, this, this spans everyone. I think we're all feeling that right now um, during the coronavirus crisis. We're seeing how interconnected we are, with the exception of the group that you just mentioned, of these billionaires, um, you know, who can just coast above it, who seem immune uh, from daily life. And you see that reflected in the stock market, which doesn't seem to have uh, any grip on the tragedy of our reality. And that's a frightening thing when plutocrats and oligarchs at that level are just so unaccountable uh, to anyone that they can coast through a pandemic, uh, essentially unscathed um, and with no consideration toward the public good. It really relies on a social contract that's fundamentally broken. It relies on not just laws, but norms, and it relies on good people being willing to uphold those norms. And what we've seen over the last four years is that you know laws are only as good as the people uphold them, and these people were never that good to begin with. And, you know, in terms of our politics, that money that upholds it comes from that billionaire class, that donor class and its dark money uh, have corrupted the American system from inside out. And I do fear for the future because it's very hard uh, to take back the kind of leverage we need, you know, to move forward as a country and as a society and improve uh, our current lot. All right. So when you think about this this latest group of, of plutocrats, which are largely tech plutocrats, because if you look at the, the, the list of the top wealthiest people in the world and in this country, they're all tech people. All the tech companies are the largest ones. How do they measure up in, in those terms? I think they're all the same. I think I always say they're so poor, all they have is money. Like, And they <laughs> do try to put this idea out that they're better. And in some ways they are. Some ways they're more enlightened, I guess, or, 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 or at least are more out front of it. And some of them are terrific. Um, but it really is the same thing, as far as I can tell, because their interests eventually lie in keeping their wealth. It's the same thing, but I think that the particular type of power that they wield is unique. Their access to this immense amount of information that we are semi-voluntarily putting forward. You know, a lot of people try to blame the public. They're saying you're mm -hmm. opting in, you're participating, yeah. but it's impossible. I mean, look at our current yeah. situation. This is the only way that anything can get done is by using a lot of these platforms that are unsafe and that invade our privacy. And so that's a completely uh, unique situation. And, you know, honestly, I found it sad because the emergence of the internet was a very exciting thing uh, in the beginning. And for people like me that live in a place like St. Louis, you know, it's an opportunity to be able to participate, uh, you know, with a broader politics and media that I'm traditionally excluded from. That's not how it's played out. What we've seen is a, a conglomeration of wealth in a few cities. We've seen San Francisco have, uh, you know, income inequality through the roof, homeless camps while, you know, people are, are living uh, lavish lifestyles, you know, often within the tech community. And um, you know, it's, it's very dystopian. And I do worry we're heading toward a worse place. I look at what's happening in China, for example, with their surveillance system and their use of technology, things like social credit. Uh, there's a lot of potential for this to, you know, take old autocratic practices and, and make them new through technology in a, in a very damaging way. So one of the things is holding on to money and holding on to the information. And this is different. And now autocrats do that all the time. That's usually usually grab the radio station or whatever, whenever you're feeling like being an autocrat. You know, it's there's sort of a playbook, an autocratic playbook. Talk a little bit about this idea. And then I want to get to your book and what you're predicting now and then sort of the rise of Donald Trump. Talk about the idea of grabbing the information, because one of the things that Donald Trump has done very well, which you've written about, and is is grabbing information and using these social media tools in a way where he couldn't have grabbed the, the, the networks, although he did. He got the networks to broadcast his things without any kind of, and he continues to do in this in these briefings, um, which is a really interesting problem because you have to broadcast what the president is saying at the same time. It becomes a campaign rally. 
Talk a little bit about the grabbing of power by someone like Donald Trump and what it means, because he's used Twitter. I, I think he couldn't exist without Twitter initially. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, he is very skilled at media. He is very skilled at PR. And people have continually underestimated him, including people in the media. You know, you see his evolution from the New York tabloids through reality TV, through Twitter. And, you know, what he does is he creates his own reality through these mediums. And it's a one-way exchange. You know, with yeah. Twitter, he's putting out policy he's positions. He's announcing wars. He's putting out medical information. And it is one way. He doesn't reply. He doesn't talk back. What happens is journalists are taking apart his tweet. They're looking for spelling errors. They're trying to decipher them like they're code. I mean, that's a completely insane. That's an insane way for a society and a country to run. But reporters now, three years in, you know, they treat it like it is normal and it's acceptable. They've stopped demanding uh, the kind of treatment that a free press should deserve. You know, the White House briefings were always kind of, you know, sycophantic access journalism, but occasionally a real question would get through just as occasionally a real question gets through now. But yeah, um, you know, he realizes the power of media. He was always been backed by people like uh, Steve Bannon, for example, that always recognized this, particularly the power of digital media, uh, the power of social media, their links with companies like Cambridge Analytica, their use of data mining. They know how to target an audience. They also know how to bully an audience. You know, folks are always blaming, uh, you know, the Trump base. They're blaming people in states like where I live in Missouri. And yes, sure, you know, people voted for him. But the people who made him possible are the media tycoons of, you know, New York and D.C. It's people like Jeff Zucker, you know, who worked with him on The Apprentice and then runs CNN and airs his propaganda press conferences, unedited and live, often filled with dangerous information. You know, they need to take more responsibility for their role in this because it's ordinary folks who are getting hurt. They're getting lied to um, and, you know, they're losing their country to an autocrat. And and that's an extraordinarily dangerous thing. How do you assess the impact of social media? This is something, you know, you've you've written around on Twitter a lot of all things. Um, But when you were doing Flyer Country, he was sort of appealing. He was giving messaging to people by going there and by listening to their grievances and sort of saying them back to them. I think that's what was really effective is saying back their grievances, but not coming up with a solution is often really super effective. Talk about his use of Twitter uh, in in the campaign and, and since then. Well, he uses it like a typical propagandist. It's repetition, it's slogans, it's simple, it's clear, direct language, you know, full of lies. That doesn't mean it's honest or good. There's some, you know, excellent quality to it, but it's effective. It's memorable. And unfortunately, you know, the Democrats and people who tried to counter him haven't known how to do that. They'll just be like, oh, he's so dumb or, oh, he misspelled this word, which is just the wrong thing to focus on. You focus on the lie. You know, what you should do is you tell the truth Then you point out that he lied. Then you explain why he lied. What is he trying to get out of the situation? Who is he really working for? Is he working for the public or is he working for Donald Trump and his bank account or his foreign backers, which is really the case? And I think a lot of people, you know, another thing that contributed to this was algorithmic bubbles, you know, whether it's just people only following their friends and not getting a full amount of information, but also just um, the tendency for people to follow new Uh, news networks like Fox, I think that's just as influential as social media. Um, That played, you know, social media played a huge role, but I really think Fox uh, and AM radio, Rush Limbaugh, that sort of, you know, pre-existing conservative media culture, that played an enormous role too, because it's a matter of trust. And by 2015, 2016, people trusted those networks. They looked to them for support and uh, they are also very gifted at at propaganda. They do what they do very well. You know, I wrote about it this week in the Times. My mom, I had, my mom was, is a Fox News user and she was going out to restaurants deep into the into this coronavirus crisis. Oh, and I, God. I, I unfortunately uh, attracted the attention of Sean Hannity who had a hairy fit about me wanting to protect my mother. Sean and Hannity had not. a fit, I'm so shocked. <laughs> in any case, um, but it was like, it was that kind of tweeting, the angry night tweeting mm-hmm. uh, that people have and uh, for whatever reasons. Um, anyway, you had written this book and now this new book. Talk a little bit about it. In the next section, we'll talk a little bit more about where you think it's going. So you, you've written this book. You're saying, look, he's coming. Then he came. What now? 
Yeah. So I mean, why did you write this new book? Uh, my new book, Hiding in Plain Sight, it's actually a history. It's looking back at the last 40 years of American history. Uh, part of it is Trump's rise, uh, you know, and the various institutions that enabled him and helped make that possible. Uh, it brings up a lot of journalism that was done in the 80s and 90s that I was very disappointed did not, uh, you know, was not highlighted again during his, uh, his run. I also talk broadly about the erosion of American institutions, basically going back to the Reagan era, you know, the loss of opportunities, the way opportunities are hoarded by the elite, uh, crises that we endured like 9-11 um, or the financial collapse in 2008 or things that I experienced firsthand, um, like the uprising in Ferguson. And so that's like the other component of this is that it's an autobiography because Donald Trump and people like him have been looming over my whole life. It's people like him that shaped the contours of my life, you know, and my generations that denied us opportunities with the exceptions of the Jared and Ivanka's of the world who, you know, had purchased merit, who bought their ways into places. We've become an increasingly nepotistic society. We've become a place that is, you know, we were never completely struck on merit. But what we've seen is a lot of people, you know, working hard, doing the quote unquote right things and being locked out of different industries due to credentialism, due to expenses. And we've seen a lot of loss of knowledge and expertise along the way. And that's also contributed to this terrible situation. So I basically trace that, um, you know, up to the present day. I don't focus as much on his administration, but as the conditions that led to it. And it is, of course, you know, it's emerging during a plague. My book comes out during a plague as I talk about all these other disasters. And it has a bit of an apocalyptic tone that I think people might have found hyperbolic last year when I was writing it. But unfortunately, uh, it hits the right note these days. Yeah, unfortunately. Anyway, when we get back, we're going to talk to Sarah uh, Kenzier, whose new book is called Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Sarah Kenzior. Her new book is called Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. Her first book, which got enormous attention, especially because it was sort of, it predicted what was to come, called The View from Flyover Country. She's also co-host of a political podcast, Gaslit Nation. Um, one of the things, I, Gaslit is such, I can't believe that word has gotten back. <laughs> like it's all, it's constantly being used. We're so aware we're being gaslit. So I wonder if you are gaslit, if you're aware that you're being gaslit. <laughs> but in any case, um, one of the things that you put on in this that you that you put forward in this book is this is not a new, Trump is not something that's a surprise and I think it's an interesting question is that we always act as if things are this is an outlier and you see see a lot of the messaging from the Democrats if only we get rid of him this will be better and I I've always like. I'm not so sure if you look at history or mm -hmm. if this is something that's been building. Back, you talked about the Reagan administration. I'm old. I remember the AIDS fight. I remember a lot of the, you know, James Watt. No one remembers James Watt. He was the, he was the interior secretary who said trees cause pollution. Um, you know, this has been building for a very long time. So talk a little bit about this concept, because I think when we make him into abnormal, it, it, it excuses our responsibility for understanding that this was long in coming. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, I saw him as a, a culmination, not as a novelty. And he did reflect, um, you know, a broader agenda. Trump is a vehicle. You know, he's a vehicle for a lot of different people. He's a vehicle uh, for the Reagan Republicans, uh, for people like Mitch McConnell, who, you know, have the sort of traditional path of wanting to starve the poor, uh, who have this sort of, you know, faux social Darwinist, uh, you know, ventures. He is a vehicle for plutocrats. He's a vehicle for foreign oligarchs who want, you know, sanctions gone. He's a vehicle for white supremacists. And he is very closely tied uh, to organized crime and in particular to the Russian mafia. And he's a vehicle for them. And, you know, one thing that has changed quite a bit um, over the last 10 to 15 years is the nature of organized crime, is this kind of blend between white collar crime, organized crime, and 
and state corruption. And we see the effects of this all over the world. And it's not really discussed all that much. Ironically, Robert Mueller gave a speech about this in 2011, um, but of course never followed through on actually uh, indicting any of the people that, you know, needed to be indicted for this to not, you know, damage democracy worldwide. I wish that this was talked for about in a more straightforward way. I know why it's not, but, you know. Talk about it. Talk, explain that those links between those three things. Yeah. I mean, basically what you see are, uh, you know, some key figures um, like Semyon Mogilevich, who is the head of the Russian mafia. If you read the book Red Mafia by Robert I. Friedman, uh, you know, which I believe came out in 2000, he predicts that this guy's organization is going to become an enormous threat um, to democracy worldwide. Because as a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union, you saw their criminals, you know, their criminal elements were no longer kept there. They were able to leave and they were able to operate and they did things like get involved in New York real estate, Florida real estate, casinos, all of the businesses that Donald Trump was engaged in. And when Donald Trump went bankrupt multiple times in the late 80s and early 90s, it was the Russian mafia that bailed him out. And so they have been in his corner backing him for a long time. And he has been returning the favor by helping with money laundering. And the same thing is true with a lot of people in Trump's world, whether it's Paul Manafort or Michael Cohen or Felix Sater or, of course, Jared and Ivanka, who were nearly indicted for fraud themselves in 2012. And so one of the questions that I've really struggled with this whole time is why didn't anyone stop him when he was running? Because this is clearly a national security threat. And it's one that the FBI knew about very well. It's one that the Obama administration knew about. It's one all of our intelligence agencies knew about. And there's some you know, belief that you know Trump probably traded favors with a lot of these, these courts and these agencies in order to keep himself out of trouble. But I keep thinking, you know, at what cost? You know, if you're making deals with the mafia, like to try to roll up the bigger player, at what cost to the American public? Why would you let a figure like Donald Trump get classified national security briefings? I mean, even if we got rid of him, the repercussions of this are going to linger for decades. I doubt we're going to see, you know, a, a, a positive result of this for the rest of my life. Our state secrets are being sold on a black market. Our country is being collapsed is collapsed from within. And Trump and his cohort were very overt about that. You know, he comes from a line of corporate raiders. He also comes from a line of people like Roy Cohn or Carl Icahn, people who just saw the law as something to be manipulated, who saw the economy as something that should be crashed. Because when you crash it, you pick up the pieces and you rebuild it in your image and you make a profit. And, you know, of course, Naomi Klein and others, um, you know, have discussed that kind of disaster capitalism in great detail. It's now being done to nations. You see it worldwide here, the UK, Hungary, Turkey, Russia. That's the model. You use the expression disaster capitalism because what's interesting is there's the other, the alternate reality, which is uh, compassionate capitalism, which is being debated. Is that just a, a feint or is it, or, or, or do you feel like disaster capitalism, which is, I think a lot of people are addressing. There's a lot of people discussing it. It's not unknown uh, that the Russians were quite involved in this election. Does it matter that it's like when I was joking about gaslit nation, if you know you're being gaslit, are you being gaslit? Like, are you? Which is an, an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to a question of power and who wields it, because I think the American public is very well aware that the kind of capitalism we've experienced is not freedom from a free market. You know, it hasn't led to opportunities for most of us. It's led to debt. It's led to struggle. Um, you know, there's a possibility like, you know, what Elizabeth Warren wanted to do of trying to gut out corruption, trying to reform it from within, trying to allow people uh, the freedom of free enterprise without, you know, sacrificing themselves to a bunch of heartless plutocrats, which has been the reality. Um, and yes, I do think a lot of people are aware of exactly who Trump is and what his cohort are about. Yeah, there's no lack of information is what I'm the saying. The information like, there's been out one there. But the problem yeah. with the gaslighting is, you know, what in the book I call normalcy bias is all these people who just act like, oh, he's the president and he's going to pivot or this isn't that bad or it'll get cleared up or someone's going to save the day. Like 
none of that's happening. None of that was going to happen. But now we really definitively know none of that's happening because it's 2020. It's not 2016 anymore. So there's no excuse for these networks and politicians to go on uh, pretending that things are normal or that they can just magically revert to quote unquote normal. Because first of all, normal wasn't that great. But also we have dug ourselves into a hole that is so deep. It's a chasm. Like uh, it's going to take a lot. I don't know. A long time to come out. So I want to push back a little bit on the lack of trying. There has been a Attempts. You know, look, I've I've seen so many amazing, much, much amazing reporting on it, whether it's the, his taxes and tax fraud, whether it's uh, Mueller trying like the, 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 the Democrats trying to impeach him. It doesn't work like it's really interesting. And I think it has it is a little bit born out of nor I think you're right about that. It's normal, like putting it on the normal scale and then you lose. Like I, I always am. When people are like, we have to really get along with, say, the right wing, I'm like, no, we don't. Like, we don't. Like, they're, that's the game they're playing is we, we playing into our natural, humans' natural proclivity to want to try to get along or try to normalize people. And I'm always like, no, let's just not. Let's not, let's not cooperate. Let's not do that. Although that's no answer either. You know what I mean? At some point, someone has to. Well, there has to be real accountability. I mean, I think that's the thing. Right. Trump doesn't mind being caught. He just doesn't want to be punished. And that's the same thing of his whole crew. I mean, certainly someone like Roger Stone, they exalt in it. They love being the villain as long as nothing actually happens to them. And that means losing their material assets and being incarcerated. That is what actually matters. And that's what hasn't been done because you're right. There's been a great deal of reporting. Like my book has, you know, thousands of footnotes. Like how was that possible? It's because plenty of other people went out and did investigative reporting and examined all sorts of facets of this that I tried to string together in one place. So yeah, plenty of individual people are doing their part. It's institutions that are failing, and it's those at the highest levels of those institutions that I think are, are failing the most. You know, obviously you have a complicit GOP. You have a GOP that overtly uh, seems to want a one-party state, want a mafia state. You also have a very weak Democratic Party. You have a very complicit kind of mainstream media with some great exceptions uh, working within that mainstream media system. And so, you know, those people those people are fabulous. I have no problem with them. But the institutions themselves, I mean, they are rotting from within and they coast on prestige. They coast on their reputations, you know, which they hold so sacred. And to try to excuse really abominable behavior, um, which nobody should excuse, like you don't get a pass for backing up a white supremacist mafia asset. Like you just don't. So what to do then if there are attempts to do it again, that people understand it and you do. It's sort of criming in plain sight. It, it, I, nobody would contemplate a crime in plain sight. And I think nobody would contemplate. Um, it was interesting. Some At some point, there was a really good SNL skit or something else like that. Like, I can't believe he did that. And I, I think I was I, I, I was making fun of that, but I was watching CNN a minute later and there was a whole panel. Like, I can't believe he did it. And I literally was screaming at the thing, like, believe he did it. Like, stop. It was really interesting how that works. And it's a, it's a psychological issue. I'm not a psychologist. But one of the things that's interesting about it is that people continue to live in the image of American exceptionalism and, oh, it'll get fixed and, oh, Carol Danvers will be here to fix it for us, you know, to save the day kind of idea where it, do where it doesn't, there's no saving the day necessarily. Yeah. And I think a lot of that shock, I think that's feigned shock because in order to dodge accountability, you have to be surprised. If you can predict it, then you can prevent it, you know, which is why people like me are incredibly annoying um, to those sorts of people. Like they, they view me as uh, a pain in the ass. And maybe I am. But um, that's the thing is Trump and his cohort, they often announce their ambitions in advance. You know, they announce uh, horrible things that they're going to do to immigrants, to marginalized communities, to our country as a whole. You know, there's a, a, a tape from Fox News in 2014 of Trump saying that he wants to crash the economy. He wants riots, that Putin is his best friend. And this is how he's going to make America great again. Like he laid out the whole scheme. And people got very upset when I began circulating that clip when he was running for president. They, you know, began to panic. And then there was just a dismissal, like, okay, he didn't really mean it. Or if he got into power, checks and balances will stop him or the courts will stop him. 
nobody stopped him. And I don't know how to get people to actually do it. You know, of course, you know, we're dealing with an organized crime operation. That's what this is at the heart. And we've seen so many examples of people who've been threatened. The impeachment hearings were full of people testifying that their lives were threatened, whether it was Marie Ivanovich, Fiona Hill, Alexander Vindman. We saw Michael Cohen the year before go under oath and say, yes, I threatened people on behalf of Donald Trump at least 500 times. I mean, that's how they are. And so, of course, everyone is in a terrible bind where they're scared for their lives. They may really want to do the right thing, but they can't. But we have to try. And I do think the, you know, the first road to that is just telling the truth, is being very blatantly honest about how bad things are and accepting, you know, this is unfortunately our reality. Like, and yes, it sucks that our reality sounds like a mix between a, a Tom Clancy novel and a John Carr novel and a Stephen King novel, honestly, at this point. Um, but that's what it is. And we have to figure out a way to deal with it. And I still do believe in organization and in community and in people helping each other. You know, I believe in the principles of our democracy. Democracy. I don't think they're being practiced, but I think that, you know, most people aren't like Trump and his cohort. Most people don't want this way of life. And we just have to figure out, you know, how to get rid of them and realize it's a tough road ahead. So many autocracies have gone down this road, but in the end, people have persevered. And so you just have to sort of, you know, keep looking to that future. So what keeps that base of his t- together from your perspective? Is that it's part of me is I'm like, I meet a lot of people. They're not like that. Like, it's an interesting thing. It's sort of this idea that he can't lose his face. It's much much more complex and nuanced than that. And it's also much more to be persuaded. I don't know how else to put it. Like, they are persuadable, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it's always weird to me when people refer to his base as 40% of the country or 30%, because I think kind of his hardcore, you know, never abandon him kind of supporters, that's a pretty low amount of the population. I put it at maybe between 5 and 10%, if that. And I live in Missouri. You know, he comes here repeatedly because he knows he can draw a crowd. He can get a fervent rally, at least in the pre-coronavirus era. But I don't ever see it reflected in real life. And I'll talk to conservatives. I meet plenty of people who just, they hate the Democrats. They hate liberals. They're very concerned with guns. They're very anti-abortion. You know, sometimes people are only voting on single issues. Sometimes people are broadly disillusioned with everyone. And one thing I noticed when I was covering the election in 2015 and 2016 was the utter lack of enthusiasm for either candidate. And that so many people were not casting a pro-Donald Trump vote. They were casting for whatever reason and misogyny was certainly one of them, an anti-Hillary Clinton vote. So this whole idea yeah. that he has this intractable, that was my brother. <laughs> this intractable wild-eyed base, um, you know, those are the folks yeah. who will go to a Trump rally. Of course they go to a Trump rally. It's like the same people who go to a rock concert because they're like super fans. They're not really indicative of the average American. I think uh, plenty of people could be persuaded if they know the truth. There are people who've written to me um, who said, you know, I voted for him, but I've changed my mind. And, you know, you and others helped sort of show me some things about him that I really just like. And, you know, I'm moving in another direction now. Um, You know, and I think that's good. Like critical thinking can get people through this. And I don't think there are people out there that are incapable of critical thought, which is how a lot of people treat, you know, either Trump supporters or just treat Americans in general. Like we're all just drunks. It's always insulting. It's very insulting and condescending. I agree. I find it. I, I'm always like, whenever those stories, I'm always like, no, they're a lot smarter mm-hmm. than you think. And it's not, it's, it's, it's always a mistake. One of the things years ago when people were, kept talking about George Bush being so stupid, I'm like, well, he's kind of president and you're not. Yeah. So I'm going to, like, I remember being at a party and I was like, let's not go for dumb initially. Let's go for other things. I'm going to go back to tech for a second. And then I want to talk about what's coming in the next uh, section. What do you imagine tech's responsibility here, the, you know, the prevalence of social media, the twitchy culture, the, the instant. Is there a way to use that for a good? Because it seems to be, it plays into autocratic thinking is this, the twitchiness, the ability. I always say there's nothing an autocrat loves more than the internet. It's, it's a perfect vehicle for propaganda. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect vehicle for confusion, for entertainment, all kinds of things. Do you see any pluses or is it all minuses? I mean, there's definitely pluses in that people who otherwise would have trouble communicating on a national or an international scale are able to do so. They can form new relationships. They can form new organizations. They can exchange information. Uh, a lot of the information put together by Trump was really you know, a communal effort of people digging up old articles and, and so forth. But yes, I think you know the architecture of the internet, especially of social media sites, it lends itself to just exploit the worst aspects 
aspects of human beings. And this is actually what I wrote my dissertation on when I was studying Uzbekistan. I wrote that when you have a political culture that's marked by paranoia, distrust, intense fear of government, it's very hard to form an opposition to it online because anonymity and all of these other factors, trolling, mob harassment, uh, you know, will lead uh, to a, a worsening, a, a weakening of social bonds. And I wrote that back in like 2009, 2010. And it's gotten so much worse then. And I think honestly, the harassment, the mob harassment, I think that's a serious problem that I wish that Twitter would address. I think there are people who are thoughtful and insightful who are afraid to express themselves in the public sphere. You know, this often happens to women, especially because we get more harassment than men. Um, you know, all of that is is a challenge. And, you know, I am worried, especially with coronavirus and all of us just pivoting to doing everything virtually, children going to school virtually. I worry about privacy. I worry about where is our data being sold? How are our kids being targeted? And so there just needs to be more transparency from these companies about what they're doing. There needs to be more accountability. Uh, there, you know, have been presidential candidates who, who raise a lot of points about this in their platforms. And I was hoping that they would be imparted. I feel like Joe Biden uh, absolutely needs some advisors on this because I don't think he grasps uh, the severity of the crisis at all. But somebody, somebody needs to show him the way because this is where our democracy is. Like 10 years ago when people were like, oh, the internet's not real life or, you know, there's so on and so forth. That's gone. You know, we all carry around surveillance devices in our phone. We all are used to recording uh, our daily lives, to filming our homes, to expressing our views. And when you grow up in a democracy, you know, you grow up with one set of standards for free expression. You don't necessarily expect that what you say will come back with your government using it to abuse you or incarcerate you or persecute you. I think that that is uh, going to increase under the Trump administration because they have no problem with that. They hate the free press. Um, and, you know, it's already happened, obviously, in other countries. We've watched the transformation of Turkey, uh, for example, what they've done to people on Twitter, what they've done to bloggers. We've certainly seen it in pre-existing authoritarian states like Russia, um, you know, which left the door open just enough for people to express themselves and then be jailed for it. That's a tactic. And so it would help everyone if they looked at, well, how have other countries done this? Other countries that either lost their democracy or never were a democracy. How do they treat the Internet? That's your future. And China as well, I would add to that list. All right. Oh, wow, Sarah. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about coronavirus when we get back, which will be, I guess, a, a happier topic. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Um, but we're taking another break now. We'll be back after this with Sarah Kenziar, whose new book is called Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. We're back with Sarah Kenzior, whose new book is called Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. Her previous book, which got a lot of attention, is called uh, The View from Flyover Country. Uh, she's also co-host of a political podcast called Gaslit Nation. Sarah, when you say hiding in plain sight, I, I, want, I want to get to coronavirus right now, but what, what do you mean by hiding in plain sight? I mean the criminality and corruption of the Trump administration, to which so many express shock, has been hiding in plain sight the whole time. He's been committing crimes openly. You know, this is a, a transnational crime syndicate masquerading as a government. And folks shouldn't be so shocked because the evidence was always there. And uh, that's one of the biggest frustrations of it, because as we were discussing before, it comes down to accountability and action more than information. We have the information. You know, the question is, what do we do with it? Right. So talk a little bit about what happens in this coronavirus crisis, because this is sort of one of the things you, I was struck by something I think you told Vogue magazine was that it's not incompetence. It's masked as incompetence when it's malice. It's masked as uh, lots of stuff is masked. Scandal is masks. Um, masks crime. Corruption. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they love to be thought of that way. They love to be thought of as inept and, and incompetent and bumbling because that way no one will hold them accountable for what they do. And Trump doesn't mind bad press. He doesn't mind if people call him a buffoon or a jackass or whatever. They just don't want to call He doesn't want to be called a criminal and he doesn't want to actually be arrested. And I think with coronavirus, uh, I think he let, or they, I should say, because there's many people involved in this, they let the virus spread. They let people suffer. They let people die. And they've been denying people necessary medical equipment. And we know this. He has treated it like a game show. He's treating it like a reality show with a literally captive audience. That's what we are in our houses now, you know, watching the Trump propaganda hour that no cable news network should actually be playing in real time every day uh, while states battle each other for medical equipment necessary for the survival of its citizens. Like, 
how how sick is that like how depraved is that but that is the situation we're in and and what's frightening is that you know citizens have lost so much of their freedom and so much of their leverage due to this crisis. And I'm hoping that at least on a public health level, that aspect maybe is temporary and will regain our freedom of movement, which will give us back our freedom of assembly, which will allow us to protest, to vote, to gather together, to organize. Um, but right now, I think we're in, we're in trauma. We're in collective trauma and shock over um, what has happened. And in those conditions, you know, sometimes it's just hard to get through the day, let alone try to like overthrow your tyrannical government. So we're in for tough times. One of the things obviously has been hit is the economy. And that's been something that's been a plus for him with those middle voters. I'm not talking about the base voters. It's the ones that are like, we'll take them because they're, they got, they make more money, essentially. Um, I, I have a lot of relatives like that. They're like, well, I don't like them, but you know, I'm doing better kind of thing. Um, it's very common. I think that's much more common than anything else. Like, eh, what's the difference if he says bad things about women slash people of color slash uh, people with disabilities, whatever. You know, I mean, like, I'm ignoring him. I don't think that, that kind of stuff. What happens then with the economy being the way it is? It, is it, does it put him at risk, even though you say he wants to crash the economy? I mean, it puts him at risk in terms of how people view him. Uh, I think people are more and more seeing that this is indeed malice. There is a reluctance to admit that in the first you know, couple months of this crisis. And as it's you know, been a consistent pattern of terrible behavior, I think people have realized, yes, he doesn't care if Americans die. And he's not afraid of the repercussions of that politically. And that's really the crucial thing. This is true for the Republican Party as a whole. They don't care if they lose voters. They haven't been acting like they've cared about that for four years. They put forward tremendously unpopular policies, ones that their own base hates, you know, things about health care. Uh, and they don't care. And I think that's because they don't expect to have a free and fair election. They've never expected to have that. And now, of course, there's the question of how will this election even be conducted at all if we have coronavirus? All right. So talk well, about I that. I think, you know, the so, solution to that, because it is a genuine public health threat, is to vote by mail. And you're already seeing the Republicans reacting to that by wanting to close down the post office by July, by saying that this opens the door to voter fraud. They're very proactive. You know, they think many moves ahead. And I don't understand why the Democrats tend to be so many moves behind, because my observation here is not unique. You know, all, almost all election integrity experts are saying the same thing as me, that we need voting by mail and we need to start it now in April, not in like October, where we suddenly realize we have a crisis. Like, we we need to get it going now. And so I hope they push for this really hard, um, because even with that, even say it succeeds, say Joe Biden wins, I think then Trump will be uh, he will refuse to leave because if he leaves, he loses his money. He loses his power. He loses his kleptocracy. Uh, he loses his chance possibly to put Ivanka into office, which is something I think that he's had in mind or they've had in mind from the start. And it opens him up to prosecution because he's been relying on his position as the president to be immune uh, from prosecution, whether state or federal. That would possibly end if he's out of office and he should be prosecuted. Um, and so we're in for a very tough road ahead. All right. You know, people are talking best case scenario, worst case scenario. What is your best case scenario and what's your worst case scenario? Best case scenario, I mean, election-wise, is that the Democrats form a broad progressive coalition, are able to work together, speak in plain terms about the severity of the crisis that we're facing, put out solutions, reach out to voters. Um, you know, the media begins to reflect this, begins to air those points of view, begins to air, you know, dissenting points of view, and is not enthralled to the Trump mafia. The worst case scenarios are, are, are so awful, I don't even, I'm not sure I even want to go there. Um, I mean, basically the implementation of full fascism with Bill Barr, I think, is the architect of that. Mitch McConnell is another. Uh, there are also theocratic elements within this administration, like Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, um, you know, that want us to be a, you know, Bill sort Barr of handmaid's. Also. Yeah, and Bill Barr, a uh, handmaid's tale kind of society. But we also have a crime element. You know, the, these are people who have worked in child trafficking. These are people who have, were linked to Jeffrey Epstein. These are people who worked with terrorists. You know, these are also war criminals. We've had war criminals like John Bolton in this administration. You know, this is really the worst of humanity. And of course, white supremacists. And that will be the biggest victim of this. That's been the biggest victim of this administration the whole time. Mm -hmm. Are Americans who aren't white, are Americans um, who are immigrants, Americans, you know, who are um, LGBT. 
LGBTQ, um, you know, citizens, just any kind of marginalized or vulnerable, vulnerable group, they were targeted from the start and their rights continue to be stripped away. And that will keep happening, only it'll expand to encompass all the people who thought that they were safe, all the people who thought, oh, this can't happen to me or, you know, this isn't that big a risk. It's a huge risk and we could lose our democracy. And there's other scenarios I see, like possibly the secession of states, um, you know, the use of these uh, migrant camps that they've created to put dissidents inside, the typical things that you would see in an autocracy. It is all possible. I hope it doesn't happen, but it is possible. I'm going to make you be well positive because you were positive at the end of this book about the idea of community building and, and the ability to do this. Where, where do you see the political pockets? You do see governors resisting. You see Gavin Newsom like, you know what? I'm not going to rely. I'm not going to let you get us mad at each other. We're going to create our own little coalition. Um, you know that to me, he's fascinating. What how he's playing this thing in a state that's critically important to the nation in terms of economic uh, re- resurgence. California has always been important in that regard. Talk a little bit about that. Is there a counterweight to that? To the idea of that? I mean, I, I think it's good that governors, um, you know, like him um, and the governors of, of Michigan and Washington are trying to work together to stop what is essentially a heist of medical materials by the federal government, which itself is an insane thing and I think needs to just be spelled out and emphasized more. Um, you know, what I hope doesn't come out of this is this sort of facetious red-blue divide, because yes, you certainly see that on a state level, on a legislature level, like with my governor of uh, Missouri being a perfect example of inept and terrible government, um, you know, for all of us who live here. But, you know, I I didn't vote for him a lot of my state. Well, no one voted for him because he replaced our indicted governor from before. Um, You know, but there are people all over this country who are trying to work together, trying to help their communities, often in unheralded roles. You know, not all of them are famous. Not all of them have money or prestige, but they do want to work for the better good. It's just, it's a matter of them getting the opportunity to do so and not being so completely uh, suppressed by this administration that they're not able to, to carry out what I think are noble ambitions. And if there's a bright side to this crisis, I think folks do realize how undervalued so many of the workers of our society are, service workers, medical workers, teachers, how difficult people's lives are, how they need to have more money, more stability, more of a safety net, and how easily, how easy it is for any of us to fall in this situation, how quick it is for things to fall apart. And so if we recognize that vulnerability, um, then we may be more proactive in preventing future crises to come. Is there a positive uh, thing to come out of the that that could happen with the coronavirus? People working together, people doing things, people understanding that they have two weeks to go, you know, understanding their vulnerabilities, which of course is the first step. Yeah, I mean, I think it cultivates empathy to a degree. I mean, I also think everyone is is exhausted and and frightened, and that can bring out a lot of bad qualities in people, but. You know, to some extent, we're in the same boat. I mean, in many ways, we're not because there are people who don't have the choice to work from home. They have to get out on the street. They're vulnerable to the virus. Um, but, you know, we've all had our, our daily lives disrupted in an incredible way. Uh, you know, we're all being, you know, held captive, uh, you know, to this spectacle of rising fascism in, in a terrible way. And I hope at least there's a time, uh, you know, for reflection and for trying to, you know, reach across and and form alliances and, you know, try to have a proactive discussion about what needs to be done from here. Because, you know, the idea of going back to normal was never realistic before. But certainly after this, if you have 30 percent of the country unemployed, if you have, you know, people dying alone, unable to have funerals, you know, you, we just have a complete rearrangement of society. Whatever we are after this will not resemble what came before. So I hope that those who have, you know, a positive vision for the future seize this moment to try to spread um, their ideas, which I do think people are recognizing are not so radical, not so crazy, um, you know, things like universal basic income or just simply raising the minimum wage, things like that. So. I was like, suddenly the GOP are socialists. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were always like, socialists for big business. They were just yes. never socialists for people who actually needed yeah. money. So. Yeah, one was saying, if we're capitalists on the way up, are we capitalists on the way <laughs> right, down? Exactly. Or are we socialists on the way down, which is interesting. So when you look at uh, the, the upcoming election, what are the things people have to watch out for then? We have only a few months, It's gonna and it's going to be a very truncated time period because you know, I suspect this will the things will get better. It's, it seems like that those are the trends, given the social distancing is, seems to be doing a relatively, you know, I mean, there's nothing to be done about a vaccineless 
virus. Right. Um, but what do you think the next few months holds for the election and going forward? It's very hard to predict that just because of the ramifications of the virus. Even if it is, you know, gone or, or sort of goes down, we manage to flatten the curve and whatnot. We're going to be living with the psychological shock of it, the economic shock of it, with people trying to get on their feet. The things I was initially worried about with the election were the same things for 2016 that were never resolved, which is domestic voter suppression, foreign interference. I was worried about insecure machines. I wanted hand-marked paper ballots. I still want that. I hope that we get um, voting by mail. But I feel like the whole political discussion is about to take like a very dramatic turn because not just us as a country, as the United States, the entire world is in turmoil because of this. And we are linked. We're linked through technology. We're linked through commerce. Um, you know, we're all taking hits when another country goes down. And some people are going to try to take advantage of that for very nefarious purposes. Um, you know, basically the people that back Trump. So we need to be aware of that. Um, but as I said before, we also should try to, you know, think about, well, what kind of vision do we want for our future? Think about what the next generations are going to inherit. You know, and on that note, I would say this is a time to talk about climate change. You know, this is a time to talk about the kind of crises that are coming down the road that may be as dramatic as the one we just faced or are facing with coronavirus. How will we handle um, those catastrophes, you know, for the generations that, that will grow up uh, inheriting them? When you think about that, what are I want you to end on sort of some of the things people can do, because I'd like it to end on a positive note, I hate to say that. I know people, journalists always do that, but I think it always helps people. What are some of the things they can do? What are, you know, I, I, we, I think all of us understand the crisis, and I think coronavirus has shown every bit of this administration in, in a very quick time, all the, all the parts of it that are so negative uh, for our country and dangerous. But what, talk about what people can do. I mean, one thing I've always encouraged is just for people to look out for their local community. You know, it can feel like the entire weight of the world is on your shoulders, that there are so many problems and it's overwhelming you. And I think when people act locally and they look out, you know, for who is in need in their immediate vicinity and they rely on the skills that they already had, then that's more positive. I mean, not everyone is good at the same thing. Not everyone is comfortable doing the same thing. But I think that everyone has something to offer and we all live in different places. And that's just a much more practical way of getting a lot of things done. So, you know, I encourage people to think for themselves, to look out for the most vulnerable um, in their own communities. And if you, you know, you don't know what to do, then be kind, be helpful, um, see where that leads you. It doesn't always need to be like, I'm forming a mass movement now. Like you can do a small part. And if everyone does a small part, you know, that, that can add up to something really big. And in terms of where we're going to get in terms of the, the Democratic Party and moving towards these elections, what are the things to watch for? Voter suppression, which is you're already seeing in Wisconsin, there was an attempt and the, and the use of the Supreme Court. What other things to ensure that we have needs to happen to ensure that we need to have free and fair elections or as free as possible? I think we have to be yeah, I mean, some of these are just big kind of level problems like dark money, the infusion of dark money into campaigns. And I'm not sure how ordinary folks can really combat that, but the government should certainly be keeping an eye on it. Watchdog groups, there should be as much uh, transparency as possible. I think debunking propaganda and doing it effectively, you know, calling out a lie as a lie and not getting caught up in kind of um, really trivial infighting. You know, I think there's a, a healthy place for debate. I'm not saying we all need to be uniform or conforming or whatever. Like we should be able to argue about different issues and, and what we think is best for our country. But there's so much pettiness and uh, gossip that dominates conversation about this, especially in the media and on Twitter. Uh, and often the media reflects what's happening on Twitter more than it re reflects what's on the ground. Um, I think we, we can maybe avoid that uh, as much as possible and, you know, look to the big picture. But yeah, I mean, we, we have a giant systemic crisis. We have a lot of interlinked systemic crises, and it's really hard uh, in that kind of context to give advice, especially since the economic and public health situations are so unstable. So for a lot of people, I mean, I'm just saying, like, just do the best you can in the circumstances that we have and recognize that it is difficult and you're not like screwing up. You're not being a bad person or doing something wrong if you're not, you know, charging through at full throttle. Like a lot of us are just trying to hang on. And, and sometimes that's all you can really do. All right. Lastly, since I have a tech audience, what should people in tech do? There's a, it's a broad, talk about a broad range of people. It's not all like plutocrats at the top. There's all kinds of people. What does tech need to do to change in terms of uh, instead of consolidating its own power or solidifying its power without accountability? 
Yeah, I mean, I I wish the tech companies would expand so that there's, uh, you know, more of a human element behind who's monitoring online forums and social media, reacting to things like threats, mob harassment, um, things like that, that often aren't taken seriously. People file reports and they're just kind of packed away. You've been the subject of that. You've been the subject of that. Oh, yeah, many, many times, you know, and so have others. I'm used to it, but a lot of people aren't used to it. And it gets they get chased out of public discourse. And that is our public sphere nowadays. And so there's an immense responsibility for people working there. And I think a lot of these tech companies aren't treating their workers right. You know, I I hear about workers getting PTSD from having to monitor these types of forums. So I think that they need to be gentler. Those workers think about their conditions. Those workers can then think about our conditions. Um, I think we need to treat this as, as a sensitive and serious problem and get rid of this idea that, oh, it's just the internet. Oh, it doesn't matter. As if this doesn't cause real damage to people and real harm because it, it does, you know, it's harmed our whole political system that Donald Trump is, an, you know, a, a product of that as well. Uh, so folks should keep that in mind. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. Sarah's book is called Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. And I recommend you uh, also read her book, The View from Flyover Country. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Sarah, where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter uh, at, at Sarah Kenzier. Uh, also, my website, sarahkenzier.com. I write sometimes for the Globe and Mail in Canada, um, but Twitter is probably the best place to find me. Yeah, and also you're doing an online book tour, right? All kinds of places. Yeah, so. I'm doing an online book tour. How's that going? Well, it's it's interesting. I'll be on um, Politics and Prose tonight. It's very strange. Oh, and one last thing, of course, I host a weekly podcast or co-host one, uh, Gaslit Nation, um, which you can find, you know, wherever podcasts are available. All right. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. Make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.